0: Today's episode of Insufficient Facts is brought to you by All In My Head, an audio drama about Nova, a young woman suffering from sleep paralysis. As she tries to get to the bottom of her condition, she discovers there may be more to the monsters in her dreams than she thinks. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast, Insufficient Facts, where we bring to you some cool tales of science so today just to remind you in case you forgot from last week or if this is your first time listening my name is Christiane. i am a graduate student at ucla and with me i have raquel guthrie i'm also a graduate graduate student at ucla
1: and kyle at usc go trojans
0: <laughs> you say that every time i feel like <laughs> i gotta start saying go bruins or something. i know <laughs> um, okay so today we're going to bring to you some couple different segments Uh, That are really some interesting facts of science. So we're going to talk to you. The overarching theme of today is going to be symbiosis. And if you don't know what that word is, don't worry, you will have plenty of exposure to it by the end of today's podcast. But I have some really cool segments lined up for you. The first one that we're going to talk about is a segment that we call science fiction versus science fact. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the recent movie Venom, which is a quite interesting example of symbiosis. And we're going to talk about how much they got right uh, with a symbiotic relationship and where they might stray into a little bit more science fictiony territory. And then after that introduction, I'm going to lead you into a recent headline, our recent headline segment, which is where we highlight a recent headline uh, of science, so some kind of science article that has made headlines in a journal. And this uh, week, we're bringing you a headline from the New York Times about ant farmers. And I love this story. I think it's so cute. (laughs) Very excited to hear about this. I love it. Yeah, it's an adorable relationship that is surprisingly old. And then... After our recent headline segment, uh, Raquel is going to take us away on the dark side of science dun, segment. Dun, dun. Yes, where we get into maybe some of the creepier examples of symbiosis. And then finally, to end our segment, um, our podcast today, Kyle is going to talk about some of the classic examples of symbiosis. Um, the fungus among us who will explain all of the fungus that you probably weren't aware about that are living. humongous. The humongous Humongous fungus fungus among us. among us, yes. (laughs) I love that. And then at the end, we're kind of going to come back together as a group and talk to you about our our Lifting the Veil segment, which is essentially where we kind of give you a little insider's view into what it's like to be a grad student, some of the things that are going on in our everyday lives. So stay tuned. We have a lot in store for you in this next 45 minutes. So hold on to your pants. Uh, We're going to start taking it away. So first segment, as I mentioned, science fiction versus science fact segment, where we're going to be discussing the recent movie Venom. So as hopefully you guys who are listening know, Venom is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's one of kind of the classic villains in the Spider-Man world. And it's actually a really interesting example of symbiosis. So we're going to talk about how much they get right and how much they get wrong in kind of a symbiotic relationship. So First of all, we need to define some terms, and hopefully, Raquel and Kyle can kind of help me out here with. We got how to do- back. Yes, thank God. <laughs> Couldn't do this alone. Um, so we have in in the scientific literature or in in the scientific community, we have there's many different types of symbiosis. So first, we'll kind of explain what symbiosis is. So it's kind of this umbrella term of when two different organisms or two different species basically have a relationship where they rely on one another for some kind of resource or um, shelter or protection. They basically get something out of the relationship. Now, there's a couple different kinds of symbiosis. Mm -hmm. Um, The one that I'll be talking about a little bit later in our next segment is kind of a mutually beneficial symbiosis where everyone involved in the relationship gets something out of the relationship. So there's nothing, no one's profiting off of the other at the detriment of the other. But there are some other examples of symbiosis out there.
2: Parasitism being one of those, and that's that'll be the topic of my segment. Parasitism is when one organism does rely rely on the host organism, but The normal processes that the infecting organism has to do cause harm or even sometimes death to the host. So it's a little bit more of a sinister, sinister side of symbiosis.
1: A more mutually beneficial one is like in Finding Nemo, there's the clownfish. <laughs> yes. And the clownfish eats little bugs that eat the anemone. And then yes. the clownfish can live in the anemone. The
0: sea anemone. The menemone. <laughs>
1: the anemone. <Menemone. laughs> <Menemone. laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so the clownfish. Um, and the clownfish are unique in that they are... Um, silly looking. They're silly looking, <laughs> yes. They're very clownish. But they're also immune to this stinging... Uh, poison. I don't know if it's a poison, but of the, the anemone basically have a stinging uh, function to dissuade from anyone from eating them, but the clownfish are immune to that yeah. um, because they protect the the enemy. So, yes, there's mutually beneficial, there's parasitic, there's some relationships that aren't even really, it doesn't really, it's not obvious from the get go what either one of them is getting out of the relationship, but they tell seem, me about it. <laughs> <laughs> we may all be acquainted with some so of we those. We might be hitting a, a soft spot for some of you, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, it's not obvious from the get go what exactly either is benefiting, but they seem to like to exist together. So certainly there's quite a range of, of symbiotic relationships out there. So today, uh, to kind of give you a nice example of symbiosis, we're going to be talking about the movie Venom, which is a really interesting example of a symbiotic relationship. So you have Venom, which is a symbiote from another world that relies on and needs a specific host in order to live on Earth. And that host ends up taking the form of Eddie Brock, who is our main character in Venom. So. They kind of have this symbiotic relationship that they end up forming because each relies on the other. Um, Venom relies on Eddie as a host and can't exist without some kind of human host. But then Eddie kind of starts to rely on Venom and gets this uh, supernatural uh, physical strength and these other kind of attributes that he benefits from the relationship. However, (laughs) there's a lot of negatives that come with this relationship, (laughs) right? So the symbiote ends up altering Eddie's behavior and he becomes more violent and he starts craving having these weird cravings for like raw meat and these like trash and all these weird cravings so he's almost like a pregnant woman which i almost <laughs> thought was like <laughs> another good example of symbiosis not that you guys are alien creatures no 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 not that you're well yeah not that you're or inhabited hab- by yeah. alien creatures yeah. <laughs> but you know the weird cravings you know Something living with you, yes. <laughs> some ties to pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the interesting thing about it is it actually is an interesting example of symbiosis in that you do see relationships in this like this in nature where one organism cannot live without having a host or something to kind of host it so it can grow and reproduce and multiply. It's not capable of doing that without another organism that it can take advantage of or take over. So we do see these relationships in nature. And usually we do call them like host and symbiote. So those are pretty accurate terms. However, where they start to go into science fiction-y territory, right, is with the whole alien from another planet. Super strength. Super (laughs) strength that is well adapted to take over a human host despite... Evolving on completely separate planets, yeah. um, that probably wouldn't happen. And you know, there aren't really anything that we know of today that would be able to so wholly and completely take over a human being. There aren't yeah. any symbiotic organisms that we have. Our symbiotes are our microbiomes for the most mm-hmm. part. We don't have unless you have an unwanted micro uh, unwanted symbiote like a. Uh, intestinal parasite or something, which, you know, you
2: don't want those. (laughs) They generally don't affect your behavior. Yes. There's
0: very, there aren't really examples where it could give you extremely violent tendencies and make you have weird cravings. However, that's not true for all organisms. We do see these kinds of relationships in nature where there is a symbiotic relationship that will alter even the behavior of the host organism. So we'll kind of explain some of those to you a little bit later on. So if you uh, want to do some scientific research, I highly recommend you go and see <laughs> Venom just to uh, think about it in terms of a symbiotic relationship. Um, you know, not a healthy one, but one nonetheless. Yes. And uh, then you can think about all these cool examples we're going to give you of real symbiotic relationships in nature. So,
2: Or you could just think about Tom Hardy, which, you know, is also attractive yeah, in itself. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's not a bad reason to go see the movie, too. You know, you get a little learning in, a little bit of ogling Tom Hardy, <laughs> and it's like, you know... $13 well spent. <laughs> so, so to kind of give you a little bit of an overview of what kind of symbiotic relationships do exist in nature, I'm going to take us from our science fiction versus science fact segment and move on to our next one, which is going to be our recent headlines in science. So this is something that we pull from headlines um, in the past you know, week or so that you might have seen when perusing you know, one of your... Newspapers that you follow either on Twitter. I don't, I don't, obviously, I don't read physical copies. I don't know anyone who does read physical copies of papers anymore, but I yeah. follow quite a few on Twitter. So that's kind of where I, I pulled these resources. So if you see a segment uh, or a newspaper article that you think might be an interesting recent headlines segment for us to talk about, definitely contact us either on Twitter or on Facebook or even on Instagram. Send that link our way and maybe we will use it for a future recent headlines segment. So As I transition us, we're going to talk about a bit of a more wholesome relationship that has been kind of in the headlines recently, uh, a symbiotic relationship, and this is one about ant farmers. And I bet you have never thought about ants farming, but they do. And in fact, this is not the first time that a species has evolved to farm, in this particular instance, fungus, a a very particular kind of fungus. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to set the scene. Imagine you're a tiny worker ant. And your goal in life is to care for and look after this fungus that you grow back in your colony. So you have these little caves that you have specifically set away just to nurture and grow this fungus. And the reason you grow this fungus is it's basically your nutrient source. It's what most of the ants are eating. And you, without the fungus, the entire colony will collapse and die. So it is imperative that this fungus is well looked after, right? So one of the things, one of the challenges that comes with caring and looking after this fungus is that um, there is a parasitic disease that can attack the fungus. And if the fungus is exposed to and contracts this parasitic disease, the fungus will die and you'll have colony collapse. So it's really hard. How are the ants going to combat a parasitic fungus? You know, this disease that could affect this very important fungal supply that they kind of cultivate and spend their lives growing and And sharing with one another. Well, how do we combat disease? We can use things like antibiotics. So in nature, these ants have these uh, special kind of chambers on their body that are called crypts, where they essentially grow and cultivate this bacteria called actinobacteria. And the actinobacteria looks like a very fine powder or white snow. Sometimes you'll see ants that are just covered head to toe in this this actinobacteria, and it's to basically prevent any chance for that parasitic fungus to get into where they're growing their particular fungus. And so they basically inoculate the fungus with this actinobacteria to protect it from this disease, this parasitic disease that could attack and kill their food supply. So, Ant um,
2: dusting. Dusty ants. <laughs> yes,
0: and these so these are like very you know very considerate and accomplished farmers. They have one thing that they need to grow, and they grow it very well. And they know exactly what could end up killing off this fungus, and so they have evolved a way to uh, cultivate an uh, antibacterial, you know, substance. Bacteria. To, yes, bacteria, which is interesting. It's more like an anti-parasitic yes. bacteria. Um, So not all bacteria are bad. In this case, the bacteria is what saves the day, is this actinobacteria. So they will cover the fungus that they're growing with this actinobacteria, and that will prevent the parasite from killing off or being able to get into their, their fungus supply. And when a new queen is born and has to start cultivating her own colony, right? start her own colony, she will actually snip off a tiny bit of her home colony's fungus and carry it in her mouth until she finds the perfect spot for her new colony, at which point she will then place the fungus in a little chamber, and her, you know, worker ants will start cultivating it for the colony. So, it's really, there would be, these colonies would absolutely collapse without without this fungus. So, they are these wonderful little ant farmers, and the thing that this article highlights, um, so, they reference a paper that's recently come out by Lee et al. Um, so, it's a, you can see the New York Times article, or you can, it's in PNAS, um,
2: And when we say et al, that means that there are multiple people that are listed on the authorship of the paper. Lee
0: is the last name of the first author, so that's normally our naming convention is for citing something, is we'll say the last name of the first author on the paper, and then et al al means basically and all the other authors Mm -hmm. that are included on the paper. So there's quite a few on this paper, but essentially the interesting thing that this paper found, we've known about this relationship for a while between these ants and the fungus that they cultivate, and the fact that they have these chambers or crypts to produce actinobacteria to protect the fungus. What this paper found actually is that um, they looked at ants in preserved in amber specimens, and they saw that these ants also had these crypts for producing this actinobacteria. And so essentially what they were able to say is that this relationship between ant farmers and fungus and actinobacteria has existed for at least 40 million years. Ancient. Ancient. And not only is this is not the only lineage where this has occurred, it's happened many, many, not many, but several, several times. Um, PNAS, also I'll go back a little. PNAS is an acronym for a journal. It's a pretty high-ranking journal that um, you can publish in. It's the Proceedings of the nat, na, na- National Academy, Academy of, of Science. Proceedings yeah.
1: Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, Science USA.
0: Yes. Yeah. So um, that's the journal that this paper was published in but so they published in this paper and they saw that um, these due to these ants being preserved in amber that they uh, this relationship has existed for at least 40 if not 50 to 60 million years, which is an incredibly long time that this has been going on and this is not the only species where this has evolved and it's actually popped up in across the lineage of these ants several times and then um, sometimes it's a, disappeared uh, as a trait, but then sometimes it pops back up again. So this is not the only time this has occurred in the history uh, of this ant lineage. So it seems to be a really fruitful and beneficial symbiotic relationship, right? They're all relying on the fungus gets to grow and be um, reproduced and more populous because of the ants cultivating it. And the ants benefit, obviously, from protecting and cultivating the fungus, as that's their main nutrient source. So... It's a really fantastic example of symbiosis. And I, I bet a lot of you have probably never thought much about ants. I know <laughs> they're so tiny and they seem so insignificant uh, in the grand scheme of things.
1: We're out of the ant season in L.A., yeah, thank God.
0: Summer is high ant season. When it's
1: season. hot and dry, they're everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere. All over the country. And you just
0: want to mm-hmm. kill them. You're like, you're stop eating my sugar. I used to love ants when I was little. Yeah. I used so to let them crawl around my hand. They're they're really amazing creatures, and I there's a YouTube channel that I'll recommend uh, you guys go and watch if you're kind of interested in learning more about ants or seeing people who build these really intense terrariums, right? These big enclosures to keep ant colonies, and it's called Ants Canada, and. This guy, he cultivates ants and different species and he keeps them in these terrariums or these enclosures where they can have colonies and he feeds them. But he also narrates the videos in like the most thematic and dramatic way that it really seems like you're watching uh, like televised drama or something. It it's really, like a bug's life, yeah. but in real life. Yeah, it really is. So if you want to learn more about ants, I, I would highly recommend checking out his channel. It's very entertaining, um, if, if nothing else. And it kind of made me think twice about squishing ants when I see them crawling over me. So definitely go check out that um, New York Times article. It's called Ant's Fungus Amber, um, and it's in the New York Times in the past week or so. And then there's also that Lee et al. are the authors of that PNAS paper, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. So all of those, I highly recommend you check out if you are interested in this topic. Um, For now, we're going to be moving on to our... Next segment, um, so that was a pretty wholesome relationship of symbiosis, but Raquel is going to take us uh, into the more sinister side of symbiosis with our the dark side of science segment. So tell us, not every relationship can be rainbows and butterflies.
2: So to remind everyone, my name is Raquel Guthrie, and I'm a second-year graduate student at UCLA, like Christiane. Go Bruins! Yay,
0: Bruins!
2: (laughs) So to get into the topic for this section, in nature, we have these really bizarre instances of organisms displaying intelligence on a very small and even sinister scale with parasites Their physiological processes, which is just a term that talks about how the processes that the organism requires to stay alive and to reproduce, these can cause harm to the
0: host and even death. So in some cases— Think a little bit of like the venom relationship again where, you know, probably isn't beneficial to the host to be hosting this symbiote. Yeah. Doesn't work out well in the long run they are being used. Yeah. Used Used and abused.
2: The parasite is a puppeteer. Yeah. So... Just like in the movie Venom, the parasite can change the behavior of the host mm-hmm. in order to maximize the likelihood that it will be able to survive and reproduce rapidly.
0: Which is so creepy. I'm so, so glad that creepy. there isn't such a thing that can affect humans because...
2: Mm. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. We'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so some organisms do this by affecting areas other than the brain. So in a more sinister example of ant fungus... Uh, Christian talked about a very beautiful, you know, Disney <laughs> yes, I want to see a Disney <laughs> movie
0: about the ant
2: farmers. <laughs> it would be great. It would be like A Bug's Life 2.0. Yeah, Can yeah, someone yeah. get on that, please? Yeah.
1: please? This is more like The Matrix now.
2: Yeah. So this is a more creepy situation. So there's an ant fungus that attaches itself via spores onto the ant's outer body, and it starts releasing these compounds that break down the exoskeleton because ants have their skeleton on the outside of their bodies, and it makes its way into the cavity, the body cavity. And it starts off as sort of like a grain of rice circulating throughout the ant, and then it begins to reproduce and build these networks, sort of like nets, fishnets around the ant's musculature, the muscles in its body. And what it does is it begins to change the behavior. So the ant ends up going to a location in the forest floor and... What happens is it latches on to an area that's the perfect temperature and humidity for the fungus to grow. But in the end, the ant loses its life. The fungus does some really bizarre <laughs> unicorn stuff, grows right out of the ant's head, uh, yeah, there's releases pictures. Its, its spores. creepy. Yeah, it's super creepy so that it can infect other ants. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, the fungus doesn't actually directly infect the brain. What it does is it takes over the motor system via the muscles. And it does cause the areas of the brain that control the motor system to begin to die or atrophy, but it doesn't infect the brain directly. Now we do have instances of parasites directly affecting the brain. And that's in the case of Toxoplasma, which I'm wondering if that's exactly where they got the idea from for venom long, long time ago.
0: But yeah, I mean if I heard about this, I'd be like, that sounds like a very cool idea for yeah. uh a villain. Definitely. In superhero so
2: we'll comic. let our listeners decide if, if this sounds a lot like the case of uh, venom. So, Toxoplasma is an obligate intracellular organism. And that means <laughs> Those that. Those are some big words. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Obligate refers to bound to, intracellular is inside the cell. So, this parasite can only reproduce inside the host cell. And some scary numbers to freak you out. <laughs> Up to 40 million people in the U.S. are estimated to have toxoplasma mm, in their system. That's a lot. That's about the state of California. <laughs> now, people generally don't have symptoms because if you have a healthy immune system, you can keep this organism at
0: bay. So you don't even know if you are a host Correct. most of the time. You could be hosting this toxoplasma. Mm-hmm.
2: But your body's doing its job. It's yes, keeping God. it. Thank you, immune
0: system.
2: Producing any weird behaviors or symptoms, like flu-like symptoms, is usually what a person would exhibit. Mm-hmm. So this is another reason why your healthcare provider will tell you not to play in cat feces. There's that word again: <laughs> poop, cat poop. In case you were planning to later today after listening to this (laughs) podcast. (laughs) My afternoon is ruined. So toxoplasma can only reproduce in the cat gastrointestinal tract, and that's an important factor when you're thinking about its life cycle. So we have rats that will be in areas that have cat feces, and the rat will end up ingesting some parts of cat feces at some point. And... um, that's where Toxoplasma begins its sinister activity. <laughs> yes, So it goes from the rat gastrointestinal tract, and it migrates up to the brain and starts infecting the brain areas that are associated with fear-related behaviors. This is called the amygdala. Which
0: now, is a really, like, kind of... Now, I don't want to say basic part of the brain, but it's one that you know has been around for a long, long time. Yeah, you find it's the this, lizard brain? It, yeah, it's yeah, often called yeah. the lizard brain, exactly. Mm-hmm. so it's it's a very important part of the brain that is evolved with
2: us over time,
0: yes, yeah, So this
2: brain region, what it does when it gets there, it starts forming these cysts, these tufts of um, cells, and it degrades the dendrites. Now, if you think about a neuron as if it were a tree, The dendrites would be the equivalent of the leaves. So what this parasite does is it starts to kill off all of the leaves.
0: And the neurons are essentially the basic cells that make up all of the connections in our brain. So these are really important, and you definitely don't want these to be affected in any way. Yeah,
2: you need these. (laughs) So like with the leaves on the tree, the sunlight, the way for the tree to interact with the environment and particularly what it wants to interact with is sunlight. It needs its leaves. And when you lose the dendrites, which we're equating to leaves here, then the neurons can't behave as they normally do mm-hmm. with other neurons. Mm-hmm. So what happens is these fear networks in the amygdala begin to be taken apart. And when when the rodent, the fear associated with cat odors Begins to disappear, and even in some strains of rats, they become attracted to the cat odors,
0: which is basically the opposite of what you want to happen if you're a rat. (laughs) The opposite. You're
2: gonna die. You're definitely gonna die if you become attracted
0: to cat odors. Not
2: beneficial at all. So, and this is really interesting because it doesn't generalize to other fears. They're still going to be afraid of, well, not afraid of light, but they're still going to have an aversion to light. They're still going to have aversions to loud sounds, but. Mm With the cat odors, or even other odors for different animals, that they'll still have that fear. But it, it seems to be specific to the cat odors. And this is, you know, I would argue that Toxoplasma is very intelligent in this way because it knows exactly what organism needs to get into. So
0: but it has a very it needs it has a very specific set yeah. of requirements in yes. order to reproduce like successfully. So mm-hmm. it has to go through this kind of complicated pathway of jumping from. You know, it, it reproduces in some cat and then is excreted in poop. Mm-hmm. And then the rat somehow interacts yeah. with the cat poop. And then it becomes takes, super rat. Yeah. Things that can handle cat. Yeah. <laughs> Things that can take on a cat head to head. When really that's about the opposite that, that you should really want to do as a rat. And yeah. then unfortunately the rat gets meets eaten. It gets eaten <laughs> by the cat, which what, is what Toxoplasma wants. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So this is why people, you've heard that pregnant women should not be interacting with kitty litters or anywhere where cat feces can be. Normal humans should also be very careful. Not normal humans, but everyone should be careful around cat feces. Mm -hmm. But it's particularly dangerous for pregnant women because if toxoplasma gets into the nervous system of the fetus, that can cause some serious complications. Mm -hmm. So if you want to learn more about this... You can definitely look into the work of Robert Sapolsky. He's spent a lot of his uh, research time and dollars looking into toxoplasma and the way it affects the brain. And he's got some really interesting work on that.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, if you have a cat at home and you're pregnant, definitely make your spouse. that You don't need an excuse. You just can be, listen, I listen to Insufficient Facts, the podcast, and they told me that there's this... Toxoplasmosis in in cat poop, and I, you know, I need you to take care of the key from now on yep. until this baby is born. So feel you know. free to cite us as your reference. <laughs> yeah. you it's
2: need another
1: a- reason to get a dog. Yes,
0: <laughs> yeah, I you like know,
1: all the
2: animals. I so cats and dogs. That wraps up our parasitic topic. The the sinister side side of science. science. Yeah, And next, Kyle is going to lead us through our next segment, and he's going to talk about the classics, classical examples of symbiosis that's a huge part of plant ecosystems. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And with, like, all amazing stories in science, there's always been, like, sort of the canonical first story that really (laughs) got something started. And um, so... Where does this idea of symbiosis appear in nature? But like, Where where does that really come from? How did people first start to notice this?
0: Right, because you know, before the age of microscopes or being able to look at tiny microbes or parasitic organisms, the only symbiosis would be something that you could physically measure with your own eyes or going out into the forest or the ecosystem and being able to take note of what's there and what isn't. So before we had the ability to even go down to a microscopic scale, We knew about symbiosis.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and if you're an enterprising young scientist (laughs) and all you have are your hands and your feet, Mm -hmm. you go walk out into the forest and start looking at nature. And maybe you're curious, where do these tree roots go? What's underneath there? Mm -hmm. So maybe you'll dig it up and you'll see this vast network of these little white fibers, Mm -hmm. dark fibers all around the roots, but they're not from the tree, so where are they coming from? And so if... You're clever. You might realize, like, ah, all these little, like, spores and mushrooms I see all over the forest floor after a rain, they all are connected to these little mysterious root systems among the roots. Mm -hmm. It's the roots among the roots.
0: (laughs) But the unknown roots, they're not tree roots, but they're something, something that's growing and it can kind of be found throughout the... Forest Forest fishnets.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the forest. So you're looking... um, And so there is a positive symbiosis between mushrooms and between trees in the forest. Mm -hmm. Um, To such an extent that mushrooms have been called the internet of the forest. And the reason for this is that, like a tree, a mushroom has something that looks like a root. And the root is connected to another mushroom spore, Mm -hmm. and nutrients can be connected between these two mushrooms on, like, you know, a few meters apart, let's say.
0: Yeah, so they're like these highways or these pathways of, you know, nutrient flow. So Mm -hmm. they, you know, can spread across these huge, vast amounts of area, and they're just all connected with all these different root systems or all these little connections very similar in many ways to if you think about how our neurons and our brain are connected. There are all these information or nutrient pathways where they're Mm -hmm. just shuttling things back and forth between spores or bodies. Yeah, and
1: the mushrooms are doing their thing among the tree roots. Mm -hmm. They're like, I don't know, processing food and Mm -hmm. whatever, Mm -hmm. but they're also giving back to the tree roots. Mm -hmm. So the fungus, the mushroom, will give the tree some carbohydrates, it'll give it some phosphorus, Mm -hmm. it'll fix nitrogen, which is is another way of saying it'll give the tree nitrogen. It'll take nitrogen that the tree can't use in the form of just like gas all around us Mm -hmm. and turn it into a usable form and like a fertilizer. Um,
0: And this is what most fertilizers are, is they're usually very heavy in nitrates and sometimes phosphorus, because those are usually the two elements that um, are really lacking in the soils or can be depleted from the soils with Competitive use, So in agriculture, growing crops, if you're or, you know, tending your garden, often if you're using a fertilizer as some kind of nitrogen based fertilizer, because that's an essential thing to really make your plants or your crops flourish as they need more nitrogen. but. These fungus, these mushrooms, are doing that as just part yeah, of their yeah. life cycle. And we
1: like to think of trees as growing like from the sunlight and from the air, like yeah. taking carbon dioxide, turning mm-hmm. it into oxygen, growing. Yeah. Yeah. But they also grow from like the, the earth, right. too, you know. So they the have root,
0: roots, yeah. And
1: among the roots are the funguses. Yes. And these funguses can be humonguses.
0: (laughs) The humonguses,
2: funguses, among us. And we should note that this nitrogen fixation process is no small feat. The discovery of being able to fix nitrogen from the air, they called it turning air into bread. It was a fundamental discovery in the early 20th century century. Exactly. And it revolutionized farming. Mm-hmm.
1: The only reason that there's as many people on Earth doing as well as we are is because there's an artificial way of turning nitrogen into usable nitrogen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, the, I mean, the mushrooms in the forest have been doing this for eons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so this can, this network of mushrooms is actually, can be just absolutely humongous. Um, in one case, there is... are old and old, yeah, yeah. yeah. these guys are, are, have been around. So Croaks. in one case, so in the case of the honey mushroom, they
0: know what they're doing.
1: And so yeah, in the case of a honey mushroom, there's one honey mushroom that was discovered in Oregon that was this is a terrible unit.
0: Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. was
1: discovered in Oregon. It's 32 hectare. Which is another way of saying that it's about half kilometer by half kilometer. It's yeah. about the size of downtown Santa Monica, mm-hmm. Chinatown, mm-hmm. Abbot Kinney. A like, think mushroom.
2: Well, a mushroom. A fungi. So there's network.
1: a mushroom. That, like Next time you walk around Abbot Kinney, you know, it's about the same size as that whole yeah. zone.
0: So several city blocks worth of mushroom underneath the forest floor.
1: And it's one organism. It's huge. And, and it's over 2,000 years old.
0: Yeah. So it's old and it's one thing. It's like one, it's not, it's, you know, not a bunch of different individual mushrooms. It's literally one genetically unique mushroom that has spread over many, many years to cover the, the forest floor. So and the
1: mushroom is exchanging nutrients yes. with other trees Yep, and, you know, it's sort of trading and bartering. It is a giant living thing and they get even bigger. There's, an, there's another honey mushroom that was discovered that was... um Ten squared kilometers. That's the entire size of Venice and Marina del Rey. Yeah, <laughs> like that, and that's one living thing.
0: So yeah. it'd probably take you what, like an hour to walk across the entire thing? If yeah, if probably more than that. Probably it's more.
1: It's over yeah. eight thousand years old. Yeah, <gasps> it's the size of an entire city. Gasp.
0: So eight <laughs> thousand right? years old is older than the first instance of written language in in human beings. So like the first writing was like five. BC, so like 7,000 years ago or something like Guys, that. Guys, if you
2: could see me in the studio, <laughs> right now, my eyes are <laughs> wide.
0: So this mushroom has been a living and, and fixing nitrogen longer than we've been writing. Yeah, humans yeah.
1: were like dragging our knuckles around. <laughs> I'm starting it, to
0: think the fungus is smarter.
1: And the fungus was... Uh, had, doing
0: well. A, <laughs> much better than we're doing. Was
1: already on the internet. Like <laughs> yeah. exchanging information had a and network. making bad memes.
0: Yes. yes. Yeah.
1: But this gives the whole forest an advantage because if there's a tree in one part of the forest that isn't getting the right nutrients, mm-hmm. the mushroom is going to exchange that nutrient mm-hmm. to that tree. Um, if it gets a little out of hand, the the, the the mushroom will decide that it's it's time to shine. It'll take over.
0: Yeah, I need some stuff too. This can't be a one-way street. Like I, The mushroom needs to also get something from, from the trees.
1: But for the most part, in almost every forest and in every single plant, there is probably a fungus associated with that plant that's doing a lot of the work for it, like preparing all of the nutrients that the plant needs. The plant would not survive without the mushrooms.
0: Mm -hmm. Or uh, sometimes you can can grow things without these mushrooms or without these relationships existing, but they're just very paltry and kind of sickly and usually don't do as well as they do in this symbiotic relationship with these mushrooms or these fungi that are growing throughout their root system. Yeah, there's
1: great examples of people doing experiments where you can grow two plants, uh, two plant like neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. One has the fungus, one doesn't. And if you kind of like ir- if you go to the plant that has no mushrooms in in the pot, you can like irritate one of the plants and that plant will die, and you can go to the next one and irritate that one, that one will die, irritate the next one. If you do that with the system that has the mushrooms mm-hmm. growing underneath the roots, you can irritate one of the plants, and all the other plants in the neighborhood will know about it, and they can start defending themselves, however a plant defends itself. but mm-hmm. It can send out a signal, it'll send out a warning. Mm-hmm. So It's very much a way of letting the forest be connected.
0: Yeah, and more resilient, right? That's a huge thing, is these resilient forests are are, that means they're better adapted to changes in their environment, and they can kind of fortify themselves and not suffer as much if there's a period of low nutrient or low rain. They're just a lot more stable as an ecosystem, which is really, really important, right? Because these forests are hosts to a myriad of living organisms that are reliant on the trees themselves for food or nutrients or some kind of shelter. So if you have stable, if you have you know a populous well-developed mushroom fungal network, then you have sturdy, healthy, stable forests and trees, and therefore very happy birds and bees and badgers and all sorts of other animals that start with bee.
2: And we should make a distinction here. So all mushrooms are fungi, but not all fungi produce mushrooms. So mushrooms are more the fruiting bodies that you'll see that grow outside of the soil and Fungi can be just the thread like fibers that mm-hmm. run yeah, through the like soil.
1: Yeah, if you go to sprouts and buy mushrooms, you're buying the head or the cap of the mushroom, of mm-hmm. the yeah. mushroom but the, that cap is connected to an entire root system yeah. called the, the my- mycelium. Network. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and this whole, idea, this whole idea of resilience and stability. And cooperativity and symbiosis is just so much fun to study yeah. as a physicist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of relates back to your little microbial communities and, like, how do you have a stable microbial community or versus an unstable one? Yeah,
1: as a biophysicist, I love to study uh, community growth and community behavior and uh, microbes and bacteria. And there's lots of really—as a physicist, your like, kind of bread and butter is to write equations. Your toolkit is equations. And there's lots of really interesting mathematical models. Um, the one of which is called the Lotka-Volterra model, and this is a basic model that looks at like relationships between like a fox and a hare, or between a predator and a prey. Mm-hmm. And this is just a super fun system that you can like attach stuff to. Um, you can look at stability, like in just the super basic model, like the predator and the prey, the two things oscillate. Sometimes there's a bunch of rabbits and there's no wolves. Then there's a bunch of wolves and no rabbits because they ate too many rabbits. And then it goes back and forth like this.
0: Right. So these ecosystems are not, there's not the same amount of trees. There's not the same amount of foxes every year, every given time interval. Like The mm-hmm. amounts of these individuals are changing and fluctuating with time. You know, Something can be stable in the sense that it exists or persists over a long period of time and you don't see the... Like actual species themselves disappear, yeah. but the numbers of these individuals or the numbers of these species can can fluctuate with either changes in seasonality or with mm-hmm. food availability, and and this is really something that um, people who study these communities have to contend with when they're trying to understand what how these interactions are happening mm-hmm. is, you know, we have to be able to accommodate the fact that the there aren't a stable number of foxes there aren't 20 foxes mm-hmm. year round in my forest right so you can go out and you can collect that data you can go and try and count how many foxes are in the forest and how many birds and how many insects and how many trees but that is backbreaking and <laughs> very mm-hmm. hard work and it's
1: much easier to sit in front of mm-hmm. a computer and run models yes
0: and to make an equation that is has all those aspects that you can then make you know graphs of or make yeah. into some kind of visual that is very similar to what is happening in your ecosystem. Yeah, and as a
1: physicist, I'm really interested in things that oscillate. You know, um, I'm also interested in things that have stable points, like equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Like, where does it... If a thing isn't oscillating, does it end up in one spot? Mm -hmm. And in most systems with this lotka volterra model where there's a predator eating a prey... These they oscillate. So there's a bunch and then there's none. There's a bunch and then it goes on like this. Yeah,
0: they don't usually ever read a point point where they're stable or they're not changing numbers. But I
1: just I just read a paper yesterday. Ah. It just came out. Um, it's called news. I just wanna it's- say this the title of this thing is awful. <laughs> <laughs> Asymptotic stability of a modified Latka Volterra model with small immigrations. And the point of the paper was uh, that yeah. you can stabilize an ecosystem by having small numbers of immigrants yes. into and out of the ecosystem. So, usually, if you start with a fixed number, that number will oscillate forever. Yes. Yeah. But if you. Continu- so, if the
0: community is isolated and there's nothing coming in or out of this system, then it'll just go back and forth forever of highs and lows and peaks and troughs of numbers of things. But, but if, it, you... if you
1: randomly include some like rabbits or some wolves once in a while, yeah. like the system will totally stabilize and reach uh, an a state, an equilibrium, right. a happy equilibrium. And I, maybe this is just a commentary on the times, but yeah. immigration I know, yeah. could be good. That, yeah, yeah,
2: hopefully we'll understand, like that basic understanding will be able to translate to multiple different... Body systems. Yeah, what you, and this is a lot of what social systems
0: science is. It's like you take one system, you study it, you understand how changes to that system might change, you know, how that system acts. And then you can use that in your understanding of other systems. Because this, just if you think of the word systems or communities, yeah, there are communities all around us and at totally different scales. So studying one community in its entirety, and, and studying how perturbations or changes to that community might alter the way it acts is totally applicable on so many different scales. So it's, symbiosis is all around you, is essentially like all the, time. the takeaway yeah. point. There's, and inside you. <laughs> yeah, inside you, outside you, you know, the birds are doing it, the trees are doing it, the fungi are doing it's it. It's the so. wave. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's very few things that I think live in complete isolation without relying on some other species or organism for... Something. You know, we all need someone else. You're no man is an island, right? Is <laughs> That's that that horrible woke. cliche <laughs> saying? <laughs> but it's true. Yes. Scientific multitudes. Yes. Yeah. I contain mult this is our plug for a book called I Contain Multitudes, um, which is a great book about microbial communities um in your gut, on your skin, um, and it's written by a science journalist and it's really, really a fantastic read. I hoped we can do it for a monthly book club one day but if you're interested in kind of communities especially these microbial communities i highly recommend you go check out that book as well okay so i think i'm going to where that's the end of our time today for our segment so that was uh kyle with the classics of the mushroom and the forest so next time you go walking in the woods if you do if you haven't been walking in the woods in a while i suggest you've go and make a trip, you know, with your family, with your friends, go on a hike, see some trees, smell the fresh air, but also think about what's going on underneath all of that. You know, it's not just trees. Which you can't see. Yes. All those
1: trees are connected.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are. They're all communicating with one another and with other organisms, too. So with our uh, last few minutes here, we're going to move on to our final segment, which is lifting the veil. Um, so this is where we kind of reconvene mm. as a group, and we're just going to kind of bring it back home, bring it back to a personal level, and let you guys... We're going to lift the veil so you can see into our personal lives as grad students a little bit and and talk about our our week, our upcoming week. So anyone want to volunteer to go first? We're going to try and keep it not too depressing and just like (laughs) not not all of the work that we have have to
2: do. We'll share one thing that's kind of worrying us and then one thing we're super excited about. Yeah. So I I guess I'll start. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I'm a little bit worried about is a quiz that I have this evening for my Neurobiology of Sleep class. And yes, I am in a sleep lab, but trust me, there is a lot, a lot to learn yes. about sleep. So I have a quiz in that class tonight, and generally I get a little bit of um, test and anxiety. Yes, I do too. So I'm, I'm working on that, and I have a really great TA, and he's been really helpful so far. So I TAs I think are your friends. You're teaching assistants in your courses. Yeah, yeah.
0: TAs, all they want is for you to... Do well, and for them to help you understand the material. Yeah. I will say this as a TA currently. That's all I want is I'm like, please, let's yeah. work on this and get this together. I want you to understand it. Yeah. So I I've got that, and
2: then one thing that I'm excited about putting together is in November I'm going to the Cephalopod International Advisory mm-hmm. <laughs> Council Conference. <laughs> so I'm working Mouthful. on a project. Cephal- that's like
1: that's like the Coachella for <laughs> octopuses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So
2: it's cephalopods that that's talking about. Um, Octopus, squid, and these organisms called cuttlefish, and these, I'm working on a project that's looking at sleep in cuttlefish, so I'm going to be going to this meeting to meet the people who are, you know, really prolific scientists who've been studying these um, you can to talk animals to people a long about time octopuses about stuff that cattlefish. i really love yeah. i'm super excited about this i'm i've been you know kind looking of looking forward to it trying to keep this excitement at a <laughs> at bay but Managing. i tell you guys it's hard i'm super happy to be going to this meeting and working on this project
0: and going to conferences is kind of like a an every like a pretty regular occurrence for those of us who are researchers right yeah. we have science like conferences that are usually related to our field of research so we'll go there to share our science with other folks in, in the community who are yeah. studying similar things. So, this is, we go usually, I mean, you know, there's lots of conferences we could go to, but usually most people go to, you know, one, two, sometimes more than three conferences a year. So, mm-hmm. yeah. pretty normal stuff, but exciting. It's always exciting to go to a yeah, conference. It's definitely. always, <laughs> where where is it this year? This
2: is going to be in St. Petersburg, Florida. Cool. I've been to Tampa, but I've never been to St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. So, that'll, that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. So, that's me. Exciting. Get on. What about you, Kyle? Yeah, Kyle, what's going oh, on?
1: Oh man, with you? I I don't know where to start. I'm a little bit overweight through grad school. I'm at the point you take classes for a couple of years yes. and you teach for a little while, yep. and then you're sort of left here on devices, yep. which is terrifying. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's. Whole, you make it so through scary. so
1: much of school, and you do homework, and you turn in the homework, you do a test, you turn in the test. People
0: tell you what to do and when.
1: And then all of a sudden, it's like, all right, so what's your idea? Yeah. And you're like, I thought you had an idea. <laughs> I thought you knew what was going on. I I'm you are going to tell through, me
0: what I should I'm be
1: far enough through idea. grad school where my boss it looks over at the desk, and he's like, what should we do? And it's not like a test. It's like a literally what should we do. Uh, yeah.
0: That's, yeah. It's uh, exciting but scary. terrifying. Yeah.
1: So I'm going through a little bit of that right now. And some experiments aren't working out, which is going to be a regular occurrence. Mm-hmm. Yep. Two plus mm-hmm. two positive things though. I have been working on a computer program mm-hmm. to simulate finding the optimal DNA sequence inside of a bacteria. Ooh, hmm. fancy! And uh, I'm doing this through a Monte Carlo.
0: Simulation. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> MC. <laughs> MCs.
1: Markov chain Monte Carlo. Oh. Oh. And so I make random mutations to a DNA sequence, uh, then I look at how the energy this of is, that DNA changes. For our listeners, this that is, is going to really get a little
0: into the mathy modeling side of things, but um, uh, Monte, uh, Mar- what is the order? Monte Carlo Markov Marko- chain?
1: Markov chain and Monte, Monte Carlo. Carlo.
0: I can't... Ex- I, it would take a whole podcast for me to try and explain what that is, but it's a way that we can, like simulate changes in system it's it's a it's a kind of a common technique for modeling and and lots of other methods and it's very intimidating which is why i'm not going to try and explain not it I anymore have, <laughs> you,
1: have you ever cooked something
0: I've cooked something. Yes, go. Let, let's hear you. What is yeah. MC? If you've ever cooked something explain before, explain to
1: us. Okay, so you're cooking something, and you're like, "This is too sweet. Let me add some salt." And So you add just like a pinch of salt, and so you're like, so you like, so you like, so you like, "How's that taste?" And you're like, I "See where you're going with it?" Too salty? I don't know. Too salty. Let's throw in some spice. Throw in some spice. Mm-hmm. Like, I liked it when it was sweeter. And go back, and you can go, and then at the end you have a nice stew. Okay. You got something good. To you're eat.
0: approaching I love through soup. trial Oxo and error, soup. approaching the optimal yeah recipe like least. is it
1: better or is it worse that's yeah. what that's that what the computer is, program does yeah, that's there's what a I little mean. twist where there's always a chance that you might make a choice that doesn't seem like it'll work but it and yeah. end it will.
0: You throw in some yogurt into your stew, and you're like, I don't know, I'm gonna worry. this seems like a risk, but it actually makes <laughs> throw it Throw real... the stew away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. sometimes it also leads to something even even better. But yeah, actually, that's a fantastic metaphor for a... So
1: equipped with that knowledge, listeners, you can go MC, out MC. and do theoretical physics.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or all lots of things. We use this in evolutionary uh, biology for modeling of like changes over time in species, so... I've had a little bit of of exposure to MCMC's, but I still the, the term is a little intimidating. Yeah.
1: So I've been buried under this program for a while, mm-hmm. um, but been, it's working. I've been debugging it. If pro if writing a language yes. is is the so if debugging is the process of taking mistakes out of a computer program, writing it must be the process of putting mistakes into it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I just debugged it yesterday and it works. Yeah, that's Excellent. such a good
0: feeling. Like uh, so, a lot of us do have to code for pretty much coding is now. A fact of life if you're researching any kind of science. Um, So all of us eventually learn how to code Mm -hmm. one way or another. And um, I'm actually in my class that I'm TAing, I have to teach my students the basics of coding. And so I, you know, we try and and explain to them that uh, half of coding is debugging (laughs) and figuring out what went wrong and then trying to fix it. So that's totally, absolutely a part of life. Yeah. Christiane, tell us what your week is going to look like. Um, okay, so the scary thing in my week is I have a big proposal. So the National Science Foundation, uh, their their deadline for a big opportunity for a lot of funding. So um, if I'm, I'm trying to get funded by the NSF, the National Science Foundation, and I have to submit my my proposal by Monday, so <clears throat> I've been working on that and it's stressing me out. But uh, we're I'm making progress slowly but surely. We're making progress. It's getting better day by day. I'll get there. God knows if I'll get the money because it's super competitive, but <laughs> yeah. at least I'm I'm working on submitting it and I will submit it. So that's on Monday. So that's my big, scary thing. Um, my big positive thing is, I think, so this is the first time this quarter that I'm teaching the class that I'm teaching. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a learning process to teach a new course as Definitely. it is um, with anything that's new. So I'm kind of finding my groove. I'm getting to know my students and their names and, you know, have some that regularly come to my office hours. And that's Seeing them get it, seeing that my explanation helps them with their understanding of the material yeah. is so rewarding. It's yeah. really like the teaching is a lot and it's a lot of work um, that I have to do on top of research. But I really, the students make it, is the thing that I like the most is like interacting with the students and helping them understand the material uh, and seeing them get it and seeing them being excited about getting it is like very rewarding. So that's kind of been happening more and more this week. So I've been enjoying that. Um, but yeah, it's just third quarter or third week of our quarter for yeah. for us at UCLA. So it's getting into it's now been happening for a few weeks. So we're kind of the the You're getting into the weekly schedule is a little bit more manageable at this point. That's good. Okay. And I think with that, we are going to wrap up our podcast for today. Hopefully you enjoyed some of our topics of symbiosis that we kind of took you on a journey through today and you can better understand the idea of symbiosis and all these examples that are happening all around you and in you of symbiosis. Um, Once again, you've been listening to Insufficient Facts, our science-based podcast. I am Christiane. I'm Raquel. I'm Kyle. And we hope that you'll contact us on social media. So hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Uh, Send us any ideas for topics or things that you maybe have some questions about, and maybe we can help you kind of research and find out some more about some of your science-based questions. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you or hear you next week.
1: Thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. As a Fact Finder, you will get access to suggested readings, our notes on the show topics, blogs that take you behind the scenes of our lives as scientists, and access to a Finders exclusive chat space that includes Q&As with the team and the ability to submit questions and topics for future episodes. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to the resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. And you'll receive a merch pack that includes an official enamel pin, show art sticker, and thank you card. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com.
2: So Nova, what would you like to talk about today? I just want to get some sleep, Dr. Andrews. Quiet. Quiet. So, sleeping. When we talked on the phone, you told me you suffer from sleep paralysis quite frequently. You aren't real. You aren't real. Keep quiet. Four years. I have to say, that's unprecedented you you don't exist when i wake up you'll be gone
0: quiet little girl can't let you scream
2: you are not real you're just a bad dream quiet now how are you going to fix me